that minimal kind of minimal output in the beginning, it does add up. If we can get 500 to 1,000 words a day, then over the course of a year, you have a draft of the novel working six days a week. So it's slow and steady, but steady, and it builds up. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I'm thrilled to be taking over the convo couch at Rights for Women today to do one of my all-time favourite things and interview a fellow author. Today I'm chatting with the acclaimed writer Inga Simpson about her exquisite new novel, Willow Man. It's already garnering great reviews and converting many people to cricket, the game of cricket, which I would say is just in time for the summer season. We're going to go into your deep dive today into the writing of this book with a particular emphasis on craft research and the evolution of this particular novel. But before we do that, I'll just give you a precis of Inga's career. Inga Simpson's first novel, Mr. Wig, was published in 2013 and it was shortlisted for the 2014 Debut Fiction Award at the Indies, which is actually when I met Inga. Her second novel, Nest, was long listed for the Miles Franklin and the Stella Prize and her 2016 novel, Where the Trees Were, was also long listed for the Miles Franklin amongst many others. Her first full-length book of nature writing, Understory, A Life with Trees, was published in 2017, also to acclaim, and followed by her dystopian thriller during, set during a pandemic, The Last Woman in the World, which was out in 2021. This has been followed by Willow Man, a book that could be described as a love song to the game of cricket and to the willow that makes the bats, one would argue from which the only true bats could be made. It's a love story of sorts between a master batsman and an up-and-coming rising star batter. It's about the love of family. It's about romantic love and what we're prepared to vice in the pursuit of passion. This is a book about cricket, but on one level, but it also transcends the game to explore bigger themes about love, ambition, passion and loss. Inga Simpson, welcome. Thanks, Meredith. What a lovely introduction. It's so oh. lovely to talk with you again. <laughs> it, it was as short as I could make it. <laughs> as my introduction referred, <laughs> when I read Willow Man, I was struck by the love on the page. Where did your love of cricket come from? Has it been a long-term affair? and Or is it like Todd and Olivia Harrow, our batsman and his batswoman, batsman sister? <laughs> is it a family affair? No, I'm pretty solo and solitary. <laughs> I started watching it as a, when I was still in primary school. So, yeah, 9, 10, 11. And it was World Series cricket and the West Indies were in their, the peak of their powers, throwing themselves off the field, taking miraculous catches and sneaking runouts. And Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh, who were the 
wonderful duo, took many wickets, Thompson, Pascoe, these colourful personalities in bright clothing and this kind of one-day games. And then from there I became a true test cricket aficionado and followed test cricket, trying to really watch every ball bowl to the point that when the Ashes were held in England, I would listen overnight on my radio in my bedroom and try and hear every ball bowled and nap in, at lunch and, and tea. And, yeah, my parents would wonder why I was so bleary-eyed in the morning. But, yeah, my, later my mother watched with me on, on hot summer days. She would watch with me just to have time with me. But it, it was really a passion I manufactured on my own as an only child and, and, and wasn't paired with playing. Um, and when I grew up, girls couldn't play cricket which I was bitter about even then as a child. I think that was unfair. And where I grew up, uh, the town called Grenfell, is actually where Stan McCabe was born. So our sporting oval was called the Stan McCabe Oval. So it was there as a, a town, a school, and a private passion. But, yeah, never, na- never matched by playing the game. And, yeah. Finally expressed. Yes, well, we're going to come back. We're going to come back to the practical research in another question. When we were setting up this conversation, I said to you that I'd read Willow Man, and as I was reading it, I kept thinking about your first novel, Mr. Wig. And I think I said with Mr. Wig, with the the Test cricket on the radio, and I'm pretty sure it's certain it was Dennis Lilly bowling in the Test cricket on the radio as well, and his pantry full of preserved peaches. And you wrote back and said, "That's it in a nutshell." But you also said to me that this was the genesis of Willow Man. Do you want to? Can you expand on that for me? How those two novels for you are sort of intertwined or bookended? Yeah, in a couple of ways. One, I learned how to write about cricket in a way that was engaging. I had to really work hard at those scenes or those passages to make them engaging. And funnily enough, my publisher at the time, initially she hated the cricket scenes and thought they should be paired back. And I didn't pair them back, I made them better and made them matter a bit more to the plot and the story and the kind of uh, atmosphere of that summer. It's the summer of 70, 71, so quite a lot was happening. And then later in the editing process, that publisher rang and said, look, you're not going to believe this, but I think you should actually put more cricket in. <laughs> you're not going to believe I'm saying this, you know what I mean? And, but, yeah, I think this is another plot thread. I think you need to make it more continuous and build it up a bit more. So I got to do that and it was a popular part of the book or one of the reasons why it struck a chord. So I guess it gave me confidence that I could write about cricket. But also while I was researching that novel, Mr. Wig does blacksmithing and that was in my family. So I knew about it, but not enough to sustain a whole novel or to get Mr. Wig to make the thing I needed him to make, a peach tree. And so I was researching in this book. My mother had given me uh, Shoes for the Moscow Circus by Lins and it showcases all these bespoke crafts, beautiful pictures, it's beautifully produced and written. And she interviews all these um, bespoke craftspeople. But yeah, the thing that caught my eye, meant to be looking at blacksmithing, was there was a traditional cricket bat maker. So pod shaving, and as well as quilt winders, the art of making a, a leather ball, just cork wound around with twine. So I bookmarked them to come back for later, physically put tags on the pages, but also 
reading about that Batmaker and he described Willow as having a kind of mythic quality, a very good piece of it, particularly shaped into a bat, particularly for the right player. Having almost magical qualities and put with the right player, something mythic could happen. And it just, the combination of timber, which is another, trees and timber, another one of my passions, and cricket, I just, yeah, tucked it away in my creative mind, some deep compartment of that. There's a book in that for me one day. There's a novel in that for me one day. I don't know what it's going to be, but, yeah, it will come. So that was back in 2011, and here we are. It's published in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, go figure. You also, I think another thing that's interesting about this is in your acknowledgements, which are an absolute font of material for any interviewer, (laughs) you acknowledge that Simon Castle in his 2015 article threw out the challenge, where are the great Australian cricket novels? And when you think about that, the only other novel about cricket I could think of was Jock Sarong's book, The Rules of Backyard Cricket, which is not really about cricket at all. Um, you saw it as a challenge, but I wonder why, as a nation, that sort of such a fun, fundament of colonial history, why there hasn't been a great Australian cricket novel until Willow Man? <laughs> no, thank you. There have been a few others. Jones had a great cricket scene in it, yes. which I think makes the book. Malcolm Knox wrote, I always forget the name of it, but Malcolm Knox wrote one, which was, yeah, for that cricket. And, yeah, the rules of backyard cricket, which is not really about cricket. That was the question I wanted to answer. Yes, I thought, oh, I could do that. And then, oh, the audacity of that, thinking, one, you could write a great novel and, two, you could write a great cricket novel. Um, When I've never played, I don't commentate. Thinking of the people who would read the book was quite terrifying. But Mm. exactly I wanted the answer to that question. Why hasn't anyone done it? Simon's article talks, makes the comparison with the great American baseball novel, which there are a lot of. The Natural, what is that film with Kevin Costner? Oh, The Field of Dreams? Is it Field of one? Dreams, yeah. yeah. Field of Dreams, which was made into a film with Kevin Costner, mm. which is it was a beautiful book and a film. And I had read around that same time Chad Harbuck's The Art of Fielding, which is a you know, stunning book. And he came to Australia and spoke. I saw him in Brisbane and on the Sunshine Coast and just spoke so well and that book is not just about baseball although it is about baseball and a very gifted player but it's about the American dream and literature it's all about literary lecturer and and the book Moby Dick and yeah it's about so much but spun around the game and a particular player so Um, and you kind of loop Sorry, I was going to say what I'm wondering then listening to you is that uh, you saw it as a challenge you didn't see it you didn't go it's too daunting to write a novel like that it didn't did you at any point in the writing process go what have I done I'm such a crazy idiot (laughs) what took 11 years to get published Um, yeah no I had initially full of bravado of course and I thought I'm outside the game who better to write it than a queer woman who's never played I had all these other questions I'll come back to I found out some of the answers as to why no one's done it while writing it but yeah um where, why doesn't the Australian men's cricket team anyway reflect the rest of Australian society, contemporary Australian society? Why is it still so white and straight, so it would seem? And the women's game was on the rise. That allowed me to cast a more critical eye on the men's game. Yeah, why hadn't anyone written a book like this? I know a lot of, like Dorothy Porter, the great poet, she loved cricket and she wrote one poem about Shane Warne. That, that was it. 
So I, I know a lot of other writers who do love the game, including women writers. Why had no one written anything or a, written a novel that was really about cricket, not just in the background or as a kind of or some motif or something, a device? One of the answers, I think, is that it's really hard. <laughs> How do you get a test match onto the page and keep it interesting? Five days. And what about a whole series of so the Ashes? Five five-day test matches. That sounds like a thousand page novel already so it's quite hard to manage the technicality of the game on the page as well as all of the participants what's on the field 13 players on the field at one time 22 players in a team the teams are constantly changing in composition over the course of a season or a player's career it's a lot to try and get on the page a lot to manage and yeah very technical so how it was very challenging to keep in my mind as I began editing. I want someone who's never played, never really watched it, you hope to better take them with you, but then you don't want to have to explain what everything is in really dumbed-down terms so that commentators, players, fans of the game are bored. Oh, I know that. And that's you've got to convince them that you know what you're talking about. So technically it was quite hard. In the end I went for, I guess, compression I probably had a book two or three times as long and condensing it down trying to just take moments from the game but I probably spent two-thirds of the time in writing and editing on the actual cricket scenes they were challenging I think they would have been a little less so if I was really versed in the game but then maybe if you're deep inside the game maybe I would have lost some of the the critical gaze that I have or some of the perceptions that I was at and themes and so on that I was able to bring out for a novel. But I think the other reason is there's kind of a cringe, a divide between our literary world and our sports world that if the literati watch sport, it's in secret or something. There's also a potential several dinner parties where I mentioned late in the piece too that oh, I'm writing a book about cricket, I'm writing a cricket novel. There'd be this what? And people throwing up their hands and arguing with me like why would you write about that like what a waste of time who wants to read that I'm like trust me you've got to trust me and I'd try and talk about the timber white willow and the people's eyes would blaze over thinking oh god I hope you're not writing about Shane Warne so you have a cringe yeah between the two worlds and perhaps because sports people earn so much more than most writers I think there's and, and there's definitely parallels about craft there as well, which we can talk a little bit about later. But I want to just go back to you just mentioning willow. Trees, wood is a recurring, it is almost like your fundamental other character in everything you write. And I follow you on Instagram as well. And so I know how much time you spend immersed in our natural world. In this case, we're talking about white willow with which cricket bats are made, although not always. What is it about the timber? What is it about the tree? What is it about willow that obviously has lent its name to the book but, but which inspires you as a writer? Yeah, it was just those sentences from the bat maker initially, Lachlan Fisher, who I ended up spending time with. But, yeah, this someone speaking in metaphor about a kind of practical craft of shaping the wood. So that got me in. I then read more about the timber. It is magical, particularly in the way it's used 
to make fat. There are many different sorts of willow and they're all used in some way, cut or coppiced and used to weave baskets. It has a strong connection with tradition, particularly European tradition, of just being used in so many ways, grown and used in a place where there's plenty of water. The white sort of subspecies of white willow, it, like all willow, starts out as a softwood, so it has these tubes running through it that move water up the trunk into the crown. And that, that gives the timber a lightness. So in its natural untreated form, it's very light, easy to wheel, very powerful. And with, under the um, bat-making process, one of the things that happens is the, the face of the bat is compressed, flattened out and compressed, and so it becomes a hardwood. So that in itself is magical. And each tree, each piece of timber does have its own particular characteristics, strengths and weaknesses, a whole, you can have 60-odd bats in a tree, 64 of them can be ordinary and then the 65th or 66th just has something special about it and if it's shaped well and given to the right player, I guess there's this sense that anything can happen. And when I spoke to the bat, the, a white willow grove, and they are very beautiful, they don't, they're not a tree weeps when we think of willows we think of a weeping tree along a riverbank it's not like that they're tall they look like forest trees quite a defined canopy they're very beautiful and Lock and Fisher described this moment when you cut down the tree and the bark kind of comes off the leaves have this blueness to them there's a blue kind of hue to it but when you cut down the tree and a bit of the bark comes off for a moment the timber looks blue so when he told me that I just thought oh God, this is a magic bat. This is magic timber. So they were just little touches, little moments, little details about the timber that appealed to my sense of story. And I knew early on I'd be able to work with them and play with those metaphors that they allow throughout the text. Yeah. And I don't want to do any spoilers, but there is a moment in the book with the bat that, that Alan Reader makes, he's the bats maker. He makes a bat for Todd Harrow, our batsman, our up-and-coming batsman, the Reader bat, which some, um, and, and the way you write about the magic that you know, Todd is fully invested in the magic of this particular bat, which, of course, as a writer is also one, a wonderful device because then it sets the reader's expectation that something's going to go wrong, which we're not going to tell them <laughs> what that is. The other thing I really enjoyed about the, speaking still of the tree of wood as a metaphor is you've also got Alan Reader, our bats maker, our pod shaver is the traditional term, isn't it? Our bats maker as a, a gifted musician. He's an oboist, a wooden instrument with a reed for those who are not aware of which one's the oboe. There's an obvious connection there with the wood, but also with obsession. And it reminded me, and I'm pretty sure it's Malcolm Gladwell who said it, that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in something, and I would argue probably a lot more when it comes to being that, that talented a musician, that talented a cricketer, and dare I say that talented a writer. And, uh, yes, and so the, to master the skill equally applies to this musical instrument as to the nuance of the game. What were you intending in giving Alan this skill and this other life outside of bat making uh, and yet also extending that metaphor of, of wood? What was going on in your writerly brain? 
yeah, that was a turned out to be a lovely part of the book that opened it up much more, I think. Initially, yeah, it seemed to me that bat making was an art and not just a craft or a trade. There was to it and there's magic and that the, the bat maker Lachlan expressed himself in metaphors. I thought this is interesting. And when I spent time with him, I found out he had been a visual artist and he still was. But yeah, he, his first great hope had been to be a visual artist. I think his partner was in the arts as well, maybe a, a dancer or something or a musician. I had this in my head that here's a, this isn't a tradesman, he's an artist. I decided early on I'd make Alan a musician, but I did not know what instrument for a long time. But, yeah, I met a friend let on that he had played the oboe and told me about the reed, and I just thought, oh, well, that's just perfect. Described the process of shaping it to get a particular sound and knew the cane he wanted and the style of cut he wanted and all this, which really impacted on that. So that, that was great fun to research and play with. But I think I was trying to show that, yeah, it, cricket too, becoming, getting to the top of your game, aspiring to play for your country, that's not that different to wanting to be a classical musician. So that the bat making, to become an elite player, a sports person of any sort, as well as the music, all require such dedication, those million hours, um, massive amount of self-belief but then also the right amount of humility it's hard to get that balance right and you're taking a lot of risks aren't you you're putting yourself out there and opening yourself up for failure or even if you achieve all your dreams it's it's a moment isn't it and then it falls away particularly for a sports team. as right as we can keep going until we cark it but yeah for a player they are put, I wanted to show how much work a player puts in to, to being at that level and giving themselves a shot at the top, like how hard they work. Yes, they get paid a lot of money, but God, dedication and sacrifice, so much sacrifice. And, of course, as you're picking up, Meredith, in the end, so often I was writing about writing. <laughs> you know, yes. I could really identify with lots of it, the dedication, yeah. Yeah. And also I was I picked up on, maybe I read too much into it, but with Alan, he had given away the oboe early in his marriage and that he's coming back to his this instrument, back to this language. But to me it was the most beautiful metaphor of him finding passion again is rerouting himself in what moved his soul. So when I said at the beginning it's about love, this is one of the elements of love that I thought was quite lyrical pardon the pun like it was beautiful to see him like the minutiae you went into of him making a read I never knew how much it took to make a read for heaven's sake yeah yes it would have been easier for him to go to the shops and buy them but I thought that you just you used every to me one of the things that's wonderful about your writing and particularly shines in this book is how you didn't miss an opportunity to tell the reader something more through something simple. So it went, So when I say that, for instance, Alan making his reads for his oboe so that he can play again is so rich with subtext for character and plot and the emotional plot. Don't, is that what's going through your head when you're writing it or does that come later when you're editing it? Yeah, later when I was editing, detailed, technical, they were te very technical 
scene. So, yeah, to try and make them work a bit better. Yeah, I was trying to bring in more plot, character, and, and then starting to think more consciously about the connections with the bat making and the playing of cricket, the practice for cricket, that kind of daily practice, making it meditative, but also linking it back out into the plot. It's about music and cricket. Yeah. Making all those scenes work on several levels is something I do more, much more in the editing phase. Yeah, me too. Um, I was just, I just always curious though how we all do it because you know, by the time you read a book, of course, all that work's been done, all that layering's been put into the novel, and you just go. Sometimes I don't know about you, but sometimes it just comes and it's really obvious, and other times you really have to work it and work it and work it yeah. until you finally filter it down into that essence of what it needs to do. And I think it's really interesting for up and coming writers who are working on their craft to really think about don't be afraid to spend hours, days, weeks on a scene to make it really earn its place on the page. Is that, is that how you feel as well? Oh, absolutely, and look to be more candid about it. During the official editing with the publishing house, so, you know, it went through three, four, five edits, um, I always get some pressure on my detail. Always. Oh, this scene's a bit slow and I couldn't follow. You need all this here and you've got to listen. There's a problem. If someone's balking at that scene or slowing down at that scene, you've got But I just make it better. I just smooth it out, make it sharper. Oh, that's not clear. I don't need that. Every time you come back, you can clean it up more. So that belief that it is important scene, but, yeah, accepting... If you're going to use that level of detail, it really has to sing. And, yeah, like I was saying before, trying to suggest before, just multiple layers, building in that, layering in that meaning and that kind of echoing of plot character. But, yeah, I have to, I often have to fight to keep that level mm. of detail in. And so it's lovely to hear, Meredith, that, that you read that and value it and see <laughs> that it's working because that, that gives me faith to keep doing it, keeping it in there. <laughs> It's, I, I guess we read differently as writers. I also want to go back to Todd just for a minute. We've talked all about Alan so far. Todd is our batsman. He comes from a family, a, a dairy farming family up in Queensland. They're a family obsessed with cricket and, and obviously dairy farming. And his younger sister, Liv, Olivia, is arguably as gifted a cricketer as her brother and she's, and she's an incredibly fascinating character. From a writing perspective, what does she allow you to do in terms of telling this story and illuminating Todd as a character and talking about cricket and particularly ambition, passion and I guess that we are our own worst enemy or our foibles? I heard you say somewhere else that she's a secondary character or someone said she was a secondary character and I balked at that. I was like, mm, I'm not so sure she's that secondary. Maybe not Alan and Todd, but I don't think you could have... Alan and Todd without Olivia. So she's incredibly important in the storytelling to me. Absolutely, and thank you because, yes, most reviews, if they mention Liv, it's all Alan and Todd, Alan and Todd, batsman. And I carefully use batter all the way through that book, which is the current term because, of course, we have men's and women's teams today. Yeah, Liv was great, fun to write. She wrote herself and in the end I felt like she took over the book, which is great. I had a lot of trouble writing Todd, getting his voice, but whenever I put Liv in the room, with, I knew I wanted him to have a younger sister. Whenever I put them in the room together or on the field together, 
it was easy. The scenes just flow. So she was great. In some ways, I wish she'd been the main character, but she allows me to show, you know, as a, she's a foil to, to Todd, isn't she? And, yes, a typical younger sibling, she ends up being at least as talented as him, as if not more so, because she's had to bat against him and bowl to him since she was tiny. So she's tough and tough on him too. Yeah, I love their relationship. Of course, it allows me to bring in the women's game, which is what I wanted to do, one of the things I wanted to do. And just at this time, T20 is coming in and on our TV screens, which I think you mentioned in your intro, there was this suggestion that it would be the end of test cricket, would be the end of handmade bats. What it, The other thing that it, none of those things happened, we've still got test cricket and bespoke bats still had a space, had a place. But women's cricket, uh, T20 allowed for a rise in women's cricket. So as a character, Liv was just great and one of those rare occasions where I felt she just wrote herself. Whenever I put her in a scene, she just took off. But, yeah, going back, editing and certainly my ideas for the storylines, she, Liv allows me to talk about the women's game or to show a lot about the women's game, but Liv doesn't have the same career trajectory available to her, particularly as a young person. So to contrast Todd, there's a natural rise for him from grade cricket or local cricket and into grade cricket, into state cricket, and then potentially into the national team. Whereas, yeah, there's not the same opportunities for Liv. And if even if there were, if she were to take them, there'd be no pay. She's smart. She's much smarter than Todd at school and so on. She's headed for university, whereas for him, it was never a question. And that's that's based on the stories of lots of Australian women's cricketers that, that I've followed that have yeah, have not assumed that they could bank on their cricket passion or prowess. And, of course, setting the book at this time, 2006 to 2009, when T20 really exploded around the world and in Australia and onto our TV screens, I started showing women's games as kind of previews to the men's T20 games. And then there was an audience for women's cricket. And then... Yeah, in the time that I was writing the book, things have changed a great deal. We've got 2020 domestic competition for women, which is televised. We've had more international ma matches televised. Still not that many uh, test matches, unfortunately. But, yeah, the game has really leapt ahead. Not equal pay, but better parts professionalised. There are people in the stadiums, tens of thousands of people to watch the women's game. So... This has been huge. And so having lived as a character uh, in the time that it took me to write this novel allowed me to explore some of that and, and to show how the game changed. And the thing that I was most interested in, which was how different the women's game is, that the women, they do play it differently. So much else has happened in men's cricket uh, since I had the idea of, of the book. Uh, Philip Hughes died. You had uh, Sandpaper Gate, the... Australians been caught treating, cheating, rather, in, in South Africa, which brought a lot of shame and, and controversy to the game. Various players off the field, shenanigans, male players. And the thing that struck me when I saw women, the Australian women's team win, when I first saw them win a World Cup, and it was televised, there's the joy on their faces. No entitlement to my eye. They still play the game 
in that way, even at the highest level. The World World Cup competitions, they just all play in such good spirit. So I wanted to show that there's something pure still in the game there for the women, that they play it in a different way and that maybe that's what's gone missing from the men's game. And how I suppose at one level too, because not only has there been the scandals that you've mentioned, but there's been multiple betting scandals as well. And so it's not just how much the players are being paid, it's also sport attracts money and therefore it attracts corruption. And we're seeing it now with the soccer as well. So I think think it just was really interesting how you used the, the sport obviously is bedfellows with politics, but it also really, the, the way you used it to draw those relationships. I love that Liv did not cut Todd any slack at his darkest <laughs> moments in the novel. He had his girlfriend Megan to be all the lovey-dovey stuff, but if he picked up the phone or texted Liv, she was just like, suck it up, princess, which was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you're getting to do my dream, don't you dare. <laughs> yeah show self-pity because ooh, boo-hoo, you've had an injury or boo-hoo, you got out for a duck. You're playing on the world stage, mate, so suck it up. I loved that you just did not show mercy, <laughs> mercy yeah. on Todd at all. <laughs> yeah, no, her experience is so different. Let's talk about research. We've touched on it a little bit. Um, judging by the long list of books that you've put at, in your acknowledgements, you did an awful lot of research. And one of the things I've become fascinated about lately has been practical research. For instance, I was listening to a chat with Maggie O'Farrell about the writing of Hamnet, and she talks about growing her own medicinal herb garden like Anne Hathaway did. So I was just like, what practical things did Inga Simpson do to immerse herself in characters for writing this book? Yeah, quite a lot more than I've ever had to do for a book before. I've always been drawing on a lot of things from my own life and my own experience and within the kind of reach of my own experience and just had to do bookish research. So, yeah, this time I knew I had to learn how to make a bat and to do it and feel those traditional tools and feel the blade moving over the willow to be able to describe that process and get away with it. So... I did uh, spend a day with the bat maker that I read about in 2011, Lachlan Fisher. Initially, I wanted to do a course with him, but over several months, but, you know, every weekend for a couple of months, but he wasn't running those anymore and he'd left Melbourne. So I went out and spent a day with him in his workshop and he stepped me through the process of making a bat. He did that in front of me, talking all the while and I videoed it and asked questions and as ever, it's not just the process, but the little stories they tell you along the way are the little details like oh I don't use marine glue because why I use this um those details of what I wrote down and remembered and helped make it authentic I think he also Lachlan also took me out to see a willow grove as I've mentioned and just drove me around the area he got that I was into trees and landscape and you know he was a landscape painter so we spoke a lot about that and capturing a living thing, a moving landscape, three-dimensional, trying to capture that in two dimensions or one, you could say, writing is. So we just spoke a lot and he also made, I asked him to make me a bat out of a really nice piece of willow, which is a harrow bat, so I have a half-size bat. And pretty funny in the workshop because he asked me to play a few shots and, of course, I've never played the game. The shots wafting and a bat through the air, roughly emulating Philip Hughes or Alan Border or who knows what I was doing, but I'm sure he could tell I'd never played. But still, he didn't let on and he made 
that, which I just kept by my desk whenever I was writing. And I would get up and hit a cricket ball, a leather ball around the house and without breaking anything. And just to have no the feel of it, unbelievable how light it is and unbelievable how hard and fast it can hit fire. He also gave me a kind of a blank, a cleft, though he put the handle in for me, but that, that it's quite hard, so that I could try and shape one the same as the one he'd made me at home. I, I purchased the tool, so I went online and purchased some secondhand pod shavers and a friend found I was an even finer one, uh, the, the finest kind of the tools found one of those in a kind of green shed scenario for $4 or something. So that was a bonus. I did all that bat making. I had to have a refresher. It took so long to write the book. I had a refresher later on in the Southern Highlands. I was there doing a writing retreat at Life at Springfield and it turns out their son Billy is also a bat maker. So I had a refresher. And with the oboe, I'm not at all musical at all. I've never played anything. So I had to do a lot of musical research, listening to concerts, yeah, talking to my friend who used to, he took me to a concert and the read-making process, seeing that because it's so intricate. Yeah, so a whole lot more, a whole level up of research for me in this book, in this writing Willow Man. And I read more than 100 cricket books. I could have kept going. I just didn't ever feel qualified to write. So you just keep researching uh, and I love the research, but yeah, at some point I just had to put them all down and just try and write. Being too heavy with that, laying that research down like butter or something, I just had to write the story and then hope that a lot of it would come up, come through me, get channeled through. I'd absorbed it somehow and then later checked the details. And In the end, I ran the manuscript by quite a few fact-checking and detail-checking, particularly the technicalities of the cricket. And they still found a million mistakes. Yeah. It's a big ask and it's also because the other thing we're all conscious of is, and uh, this would particularly apply to anyone who's writing anything which involves lots of research, I'm thinking historical fiction, is not to put that on the page in such a way that everyone goes, oh, look here, I've done all this research and you need to know I know how to play this game. And so there's also that element of trying to keep the nuance in the writing and you can drown in the research as well can't you like it's stepping out of the research is really important yeah in the end even just watch watching the game we didn't mention how many hours i spent watching the game (laughs) i just assumed that because you're a bit of a cricket tragic so i assumed that all those nights listening to tests etc you probably know i mean you've got alan maxwell in the novel but you've probably got all those people in your head all the time and that would surely inform how you wrote about the test cricket as well. Because I certainly picked up on that there's a certain cadence to cricket commentating, isn't there, that, and that you really picked up on the way they structure a comment about the game as well. So it must there must be a level of immersion there, surely. Absolutely. But, yeah, it was great. I had got to the point in my life where it was hard to justify the time I spent watching cricket. Suddenly that was just research. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. um, could absolutely justify it. Yeah, thousands of hours, millions of hours watching the game. Yeah, absolutely. And so much happened in the game too. I kept shifting. Oh, I want to show this. Oh, I want to show that. Or I want to write about this. I had this whole section after Sandpaper Gate. Uh, so dismayed with the game and angry and lost my love for it. And yeah, hun- could have been another hundred pages, but I just yeah dropped all that to hang on, hoping to take the readers back to the purity of it like 
the tradition of it, the love for it, not to necessarily get too bogged down in the detail. I know oh, with the I... cricket scenes, I had to I had to cull a lot. So they're just little snippets from a game. Thinking of scenes, I guess, within the game, and I really had to bring it back to what what's necessary to show Todd moving forward. Yeah, um, oh, and later oh. live moving forward. Yeah, exactly. And also, when you're saying not getting bogged down in research, is you also need to think about what can I let go of in reality? So I know that you mentioned that you've played a bit with some of the timing of when things are done because it didn't serve the purpose of the story. When is, for pe- people who are learning how to put all this together, how do you make that decision when you go, you know what, it doesn't suit me that the Sheffield Shield is in this these months, I need it to be in those months. Like, how do you then, given that you've meticulously researched and everything's accurate, that you suddenly go, eh, except for that bit? What goes on in yeah. that decision making? Yeah, and that that's in the sort of the first edit, taking your kind of zero draft, your me draft, starting to think about a structure and starting to think more critically about it all. Yeah, those were some of the tough decisions, direct decisions I guess you'd call them and I think that probably takes confidence I don't think I could have done this as my first book I wouldn't have had the confidence to make decisions like that sometimes I would just try I thought well I'll just try I'll try doing this and see if it works I really didn't know if it would work but yeah there were a couple of things like that so the compression so I've compressed a kind of whole career down to a a few years in a way. Yeah, there are real players on the scene. So Ponting, I think Lily gets a mention. So the history of the game is absolutely accurate. But I knew I didn't want my contemporary players to be real people because people would find that distracting. And it would limit me. How could I have them doing what I wanted them to do if I'm limited by what they did in their careers? So Harrow is loosely inspired by Philip Hughes, but then also influenced Steve Smith, Shane, and more recently, Will Bukowski, who was this prodigy coming through, but then he keeps getting injured. So allowing myself to shift over time away from those inspirational figures. You've also got Alan Border, you've got Justin Langer, and they are speaking parts, shall we say. They're not just background figures. Do you run the manuscript past those living people to see if they're okay, or do you just assume it's, you haven't said anything that, paints them in a bad light so everything should be fine. Yeah, that's right. I trusted that I could intuit them. I spoke with Gideon Haig and Peter Layla yesterday on the podcast and they, Gideon mentioned, I mentioned the, the late commentator Peter Roebuck, who I've read a lot of his work and he unfortunately took his own life in South Africa. You know, that's a whole story within the game as well. But I had Alan Reader. Alan Reader says something about Roebuck throwing a wet blanket over everything and Gideon read this line and he and Peter laughed and said oh he would have loved that Peter Roebuck would have loved that and I've just got to trust that I've got those things right so that was slightly negative but they're laughing and Roebuck's not around with Alan Border I think it's positive but I've just heard him so speak so much I figure I'm hoping I'm intuiting him and channeling him and yeah as you say there's nothing really negative the only thing, I ran something by Adam Gilchrist. I used his presentation of the baggy green cap for a current, for one of my made-up players and drew on his speech. And that was actually using some of his words for my purposes. So we did write to him late in the piece and 
ask if that was okay, but then he didn't reply. So what can you do? And with the editorial process, like once you're in the formal edit, when we're not doing our own head spin edit, I know editors are supposed to be a jack of all trade. I've had some interesting conversations with my editors over stuff where they've questioned whether something would really happen and you go, no, that really is real life this is what actually happens and whatever so I was just curious did they have to find you copy editors and structural editors who were cricket fans or did they all have to learn on the run about to catch up with your deep knowledge as it were compared to I'd imagine compared to them in particular how did that work yeah we had our expert readers so it went out to two three really um one was a friend of mine and then two two friends of mine and then two people they got, one of whom was Malcolm Moss. So I went to these expert readers. So then we could all trust that, oh, that must be okay or, no, they're balking at that, so we'll have to look at that or, no, that's wrong. Yeah, so we had those expert readers as backup. But, yeah, the head editor who coordinates it all at Hachette, she had to become expert in cricket. And I think when our, the structural edit was given to someone out of house, so who did have some cricket knowledge, so that that helped. It's good though to get the dumb, the non-expert of questions. That's quite mm. healthy. But yeah, at the end of the day, you've got to make those calls yourself. And I, yeah, oh, would this happen? Would they in just you know this is cricket? Yes, this is cricket. So at the end, they had to trust me. But yeah, the in-house editor, I thought she'd hate it. I thought cricket would not be her thing. But she ended up really loving and getting into the game I had to take her with me she was my ideal reader in a way someone who doesn't know the game doesn't know all that stuff doesn't you can't assume knowledge or filling in the gaps or picking up your inferences or your references why why this yeah yeah would, would this really happen Exactly. I want. I read somewhere. I heard somewhere. Maybe that I was quite. quite <laughs> this is maybe an aspirational question. That you, when you're drafting, you only you're only at your desk for a couple of hours a day, and then you go off and do other things in your day. So I guess if that's true, do you like? Is it a discipline issue? Do you say I need to get a certain number of words done in this time when I'm drafting? And I guess leading on from that, then if that's what you do when you're drafting. What happens when you then go back to do that, when you start the edit, that edit process? And for the listeners, your edit process, not the publisher edit process. What's the difference? What's your structure in that routine? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Yeah, when I'm writing new work, I'm at my best and it has been my practice just to work between, say, 7 and 9 in the morning or and a couple of hours first thing in the morning, that's when I'm at my best and it's sort of all downhill from the, That's me coming up with new work. I find I'm imaginatively fresh then. Uh, and after that I'm spent, I used to write, I used to be able to write a thousand words. When I first started writing, I had to fit that in between the gym and going to work. So I had an hour and I could write a thousand words in an hour. I can't do that anymore. It probably would take me two on a good day, but I try not to focus on the words anymore, but just getting a scene down, to get one scene down and be pretty happy with it, maybe start another one and leave something for the next day. I just find at the end of that time I've imaginatively spent and if I push on beyond that time, it's counterproductive. So I need to get up, get out, do something else, get some other things done, it, which is not to say I don't come back later in the day and work on something different that's at a later stage of doing editing or certainly research, I'll come back and do research or reading or something, some other, all the admin that's now 
associated with the job. It seems to take more and more time. Or I might be publicising another book or something. So there's plenty of other work to do. But, yeah, that minimal kind of minimal output in the beginning, it does add up. If we can get 500 to 1,000 words a day, then over the course of a year you have a draft of the novel working six days a week. So it's slow and steady but steady and it builds up. I can stay in it. Editing completely different, much more intense, and I can keep going all day. It gets obsessive. I'll probably have a deadline at some point. But, yeah, I'll try and clear all other tasks and give myself two weeks to a month to really turn that, just discover and map what that first draft I've come up with is, what's there, what isn't, and map what I've got and highlight, identify what needs doing to turn that into a a real first draft I could show the publisher so that development stage is one of the more intense periods and yeah anywhere from two weeks to six weeks to get it done I guess my first draft zero drafts are a lot better than they used to be but it, it still takes me a lot of work in that process to mind you I still think six six weeks to get it in through that first edit is pretty damn good I would spend a month tearing my draft apart, making lots of notes and putting ideas together. And then I'll probably, I'm doing it right now, I'm spending four or five months then doing a massive rewrite. But then yeah. I don't do more edits either. Do you do multiple edits? Or is it just that one big six-week stint and then it's gone off to the publisher? Depends on the book. Willow Man was really unwieldy. It was, I don't know, over 200,000 words. So, it, yeah. Just I had no idea what to do with it for a long time. Others more, the last one was more straightforward. It was written more quickly, more straightforward narrative. And I probably had different expectations for it too. It varies a lot, but, yeah, that's probably the major work before I let anyone see it. And then I'll do another, print it out, read it, and tidy it up in other ways. I know, yeah, I'll know there's more work to do, but at that point I send it off to the publisher and then it starts clicking into a more formal process their initial feedback from the publisher that's also a good time often their reader and getting just the verbal comments over the phone about what's really working and what's but then the things that aren't that I find that really oh okay it's a book it's going to be okay I'm going to get there I just need to yeah with me usually it's more of the characters on the page and more of their relationships I'm always my weak points I was going to say that was actually going to be my next question. I'm always curious about this one as well, is what do you see as your strengths as a writer and do you therefore try and just ignore the bits you're not good at (laughs) or do you have to always then have to go and spend more of your edit time working on those, you know, your weaker links, shall we say? I don't like calling them weaknesses because there's plot-driven novels, there's character-driven novels, bloody blah, blah. But what are you, all these years later, what do you see as, I am good at these things, this is my strong suit? I gather I'm good at description and invoking the natural world for people. Yeah. Conveying the natural world and the character's attachment to it in particular places. I gather I do that well. I think probably... Yeah, on a sentence level, I can write a pretty sentence and do more than that, develop my imagery into something more thematic throughout the course of a novel that does a lot of the big hitting for me in terms of what the book's about and who the characters are and this kind of more, yeah, poetic aspect to it. I enjoy and, yeah, probably do pretty well. Yeah, but traditionally relationships on the page have have been my real 
weakness and where I've been less interested in them and I have a sense of the characters and their relationships with each other in my head, but it's not necessarily enough of it on the page. And so I've had a, I changed publishers within the publishing house, the person I deal with. I changed for Last Woman, in the middle of Last Woman, actually. And, yeah, Rebecca Saunders is very good. She has just pushed me, to be honest, really pushed me to get more on the page about those relationships, encouraging me to be more over, reassuring me that I'm not overdoing it, that I'm not being melodramatic. You couldn't if you tried, she said to me. So, yeah, I do feel with Willow Man that I've turned a corner and it's a much more relationship-driven book and more plot-driven, ironically, being about cricket. And, yeah, I now understand what, so the process of doing it, writing it and working with someone who's skilled and, yeah, persistent enough to get the best out of me. Yeah, it feels like a step up as a book and, mm-hmm. yeah, hopefully it's- I can take that into my others and do it myself yeah exactly it's very much a relationship driven book I wouldn't want anyone to sit there and go I don't like cricket or wouldn't read it but it's about the perennial issues around as I said love stories one of the things I was curious to ask you too because I know this is a constant topic and I know we're running out of time you've got both two PhDs you've got one in English literature and one in creative writing and there's always these conversations isn't there around should I do postgraduate qualifications should I rely on the school of life can I afford to invest the time the money etc 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 what I was curious for to know from you is what do you think those degrees those studies gifted you as a writer confidence was it skills was it what what would you say was the main reward if you like for all that work that you got from those two PhDs yeah look the second one was in English Lit and looking at the history of Australian nature writing. So, you know, that benefited my depth of knowledge and it was something I was doing anyway. As different in a way, it's informed me. Yeah, it was formalising the research I was doing anyway, if you like. And I actually have three English literature degrees and of anything, they are the most valuable because I learned to read and, and read various canons of literature and dove in deep to research. So it taught me the research skills, understanding of writing and body of work that's out there in any genre and so on and the creative writing degree phd i think the most important aspect of that is getting to work with a master like the old art always apprentice to a master so it's a form of mentoring that is just formalized with i think it does give you confidence it also gives you a peer group your cohort that you go through with i think that's tremendously important and you learn how to give feedback to others, which is a valuable skill to, to give and receive feedback. I should emphasise that and receive. So they were probably the most valuable elements of that, that early kind of having a writing group around you, someone you can submit your work to and gain confidence quietly, privately in that way. Yeah. And my last question, because I'm conscious of our time, I just wondered too, because Willow Man's been a book that's been with you for a really long time. It's a, it was a much bigger book than the finished product. I'm wondering what you've taken away from that writing experience towards your next projects. A lot of confidence can tackle now something I know nothing about. Yeah, I did have a lot of moments of doubt with this book and fear to succeed. Yeah, I think it, it has. I think I've done what I wanted to do. Yeah, now and I've got this new bow, string to my bow, with writing relationships so 
confidence mainly that I tackle something big and challenging and you can your writing improves through the doing of it, through the practice of it. And you never know, quite know the shape of what will come out the other end, but it's something will just to trust my process. Yeah, my abilities. I think that staying challenged is important too. I wouldn't want to just settle into writing the same old thing. I like surprising people. <laughs> and I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you, Inga Simpson, for joining us on the Convo Couch at Rights for Women today. It's been such a pleasure to, to take the seat away from Pamela and it's really interesting to talk about craft and writing with someone of such immense sensitivity and skill as yourself. I think Willow Man is an outstanding novel. I'm sure we'll hear about it in all the awards next year and it's certainly deserving of all the praise being heaped upon it and for definitely for lovers of all kinds, not just lovers of cricket. So congratulations on writing such a beautiful book. Thank you to everyone for joining us at Rights for Women and you can find out more about Inga and her writing on her website at ingasimpson.com. On her social, she's Nest of Pages, beautiful photographer, so well worth looking at. And, of course, all her books are available at all your bookstores and your local libraries. Thank you and thank you, Inga. Oh, thanks, Meredith. Lovely to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>